says, summoning the twelve, he, meaning Jesus, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. Uh, he was perplexed because some said that John, John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. This is God's word. You can take your seats. I ask you to join me for another moment of prayer. God, we give you thanks for your supernatural gospel this morning. We know that when it is proclaimed, it never returns void. It always yields the outcome and result that you intend to see it yield. So God, we thank you for the gospel for the outcome that it has yielded in our lives and for the grace that you give in allowing us to be used and seeing it yield the great outcome of hope in other people's lives. God, I pray and ask that as we read and study this passage this morning that we'd be reminded of the great privilege it is to go in the name of Christ. The gospel's a great cause, Lord. Somebody would be reminded of the great privilege it is to labor for the cause of Christ. Might would be reminded of how we can faithfully trust in the provisions of Christ. And Father, might we be reminded of the God-given purpose we have to contribute to the fame of Christ. He's the only one worthy of any worship and glory. So we seek to give it all to him. And we thank you for the ways that we get to, do that, get to do that, one of them being the way of evangelism and just simply telling others about what he's done. So I pray and ask that as we think about evangelism this morning, that you would compel us to continue in faithfulness with this, to take this great gospel message that we've been entrusted with and to see it be carried to the ends of the earth. God, I pray for myself as I attempt to preach toward that end. Would you give me grace, Lord? Would you give me mental clarity and focus? Would you give me unction in my speech? Clarity in my words, Father. Would you use me as a tool of yours to proclaim the gospel even this morning? I rejoice in knowing that your strength is made perfect in weakness. And I acknowledge my own weaknesses today, Father. As a flawed, inadequate human man attempting to communicate on your divine behalf, I pray that you give help. I pray that you give help this morning, Lord. And I pray this for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit, and in the name of your son. Amen. <clears throat> Make 
me like Mike. <laughs> Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you will get it in a minute. In a classic movie entitled Like Mike, those are the words uttered by a 13-year-old boy as he slipped his feet into a pair of sneakers that would forever alter the course of his life. If you've seen the early 2000s movie entitled Like Mike, then you know that the exact scene that I'm talking about. The whole premise of this movie is centered around a pair of tennis shoes. In the early parts of the movie, the young Calvin Cambridge is given a pair of shoes that supposedly used to belong to some famous basketball player. Well, he looks inside the shoes and he finds inside, written on the tongue of the shoes, the initials MJ. So naturally, his assumption is that these shoes were once the possession of the legendary NBA player, Michael Jordan. So naturally, Calvin comes to love these shoes. He wears them everywhere. He even sleeps in them. And at one point, he climbs a telephone pole in the middle of a thunderstorm to retrieve them from a telephone line that they were stuck on. These shoes mean the world to Calvin. And he eventually realizes that not only does he, does he feel cool when he wears them, but he can actually play basketball like the original owner himself. Many people say that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. I didn't come today to argue the point about whether he is or not. I imagine there are many opinions about that in the room this morning. But it seems that the producers of this movie may have thought that he was because when Calvin puts his old tennis shoes on, something happens to 13-year-old Calvin, and he instantly becomes the greatest NBA player of his day. When you watch the movie, you might say that Calvin played in the spirit or with the basketball-playing power of Michael Jordan. Some might phrase it by saying that he had the basketball court authority of Michael Jordan. Because of the, th of the things that young Calvin suddenly became able to do, some might say that it was as if he stepped into the NBA and simply continued what Michael Jordan had started. His skills in the movie were so similar to MJ's that it almost seemed as if he was simply an extension of the very same talent. Now, this is obviously a fictional movie. But it's not a fictional concept. You see, it's often the case that the greats in the world will have their impact in the world be multiplied and extended because somewhere along the way, someone catches on to what they do, they acquire what they have, and they seek to imitate who they are. And in some ways, that's what we're seeing in the passage we're studying this morning. Christ Jesus has been on earth in human flesh for about 31 years at this point. He's been ministering publicly for about a year and a half at the point where our passage starts. And for a large portion of that ministry, he's, he's had these, these 12 men whom he dubbed as apostles back in chapter 6 to follow him, observe what he does, and learn from him. And now, beginning with our passage in chapter 9, they're going to begin imitating him as an extension of his ministry. And I'll go ahead and say at the outset here, my aim in preaching this passage this morning is to exhort y'all today to also imitate Christ in his ministry. But you see, then again, I don't want to merely exhort you to do it. I want to remind you that as a people of God, you have the responsibility to imitate and extend the ministry of Christ. You see, it's not just the apostles in the, 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 in the passage, beloved, but it's all of God's people everywhere from all times. Calvin Cambridge had a wish to, to play basketball like Mike. And if you're here as a Christian this morning, you should have the wish to spread the gospel like Christ. It's the first sermon that y'all are hearing from me in this new year. And I want to use it to, to, to issue three simple challenges to you. As we continue settling into the year 2023, I challenge you to make this a year that you labor for the cause of Christ, trust in the provision of Christ, and contribute to the fame of Christ. We want to labor for the cause of Christ, trust in the provision of Christ, 
and contribute to the fame of Christ. If you regularly worship with us at Pioneer, <clears throat> then you know that we're a church who's committed to expositional preaching. This means that we tend to take a single book from the Bible and, and, and week by week we walk through that book sequentially as it appears in Scripture. Well, we've taken the book of Luke and we've kind of broken it down into seasons. So we cover a chunk of the book, we take a break from it, but then we return to it to cover another chunk. And we'll do this until we finish the whole book. But this morning, we're returning to Luke for season three of our study in Luke's gospel. And this means that we get to chapter nine, but we've already seen many things happen before this. The gospel of Luke is called the gospel of Luke because gospel means good news. And this is the good news story of Jesus's life, death and resurrection written by a man named Luke. And now we know that in the beginning of the book, he wrote about the prophecy that told of Jesus' birth and, and how angels came to, to tell of this great Savior who would come to, to establish a great ministry among his people. Well, then he's eventually born by the miraculous means of virginal conception. His mom had never been intimate with a, with a man, but the Holy Spirit himself planted a seed in her that allowed her to carry and give birth to Jesus. And then after he's grown into adulthood, we see that his life is going to be as miraculous as his conception was. He starts to heal people of, of sickness and disease and forgive sins and cast demons out and preach the most powerful sermons that anybody's ever heard and overcome Satan's temptations and, and perform miracles like raising people from the dead and making storms cease by simply speaking and telling them to stop. We don't want to forget that Jesus has done all of that before we get to chapter 9. And we also want to remember that along the way, he gathered a group of 12 men who followed him everywhere and essentially devoted their lives to being his shadow so that they could learn from him. Well, that group of 12 has observed all of these things, and now they're being summoned at the beginning of chapter 9, and Jesus tells them that it's time for them to go and do as they've seen him do. He commissions them to labor for the same cause that they've watched him labor for. I think it's a quality refresher of what discipleship is. This is the way it works. According to the pattern of our Savior himself, friends, discipleship is when someone observes and learns from the life of someone else. So they they witness the faithfulness of someone else, but then they step up and they go imitate that faithfulness on their own. So the ideal end of discipling relationships is for us to eventually take what we've learned, live it out, and then become those who pass it on to others so that the multiplication and domino effect continues. And now hear me out, church. This passage is primarily about evangelism. It's about seeing the gospel and reaching lost people. But you know something? The fastest way for us to see the gospel be spread is by multiplying those who can spread it. You see, that's what Jesus is modeling for us here. He spent the eight chapters leading up to this point doing all of this ministry that I, uh, that I mentioned a little while ago. And as a result, his reputation and popularity has grown and the crowds who come seeking him are getting larger and larger. And so Jesus kind of takes a step back and he says, OK, I'm not going to try to minister to these crowds by myself anymore. I'm going to multiply the number of people who can minister to them. He says, these 12 men who have observed my ministry and watched closely are now going to multiply my ministry and work alongside me. So Jesus says from this point forward, they're not only going to be watchers, but they're also going to be workers. And this is the beauty of discipleship, friends. You see, discipleship feeds evangelism. That's why I talk about it all the time. I don't exhort us to disciple one another because I want us to be a church of, of 70 people who know a bunch of stuff and are okay to just know a bunch of stuff. I exhort us to disciple one another because hopefully the discipleship bolsters our love for God, which will then bolster our burden for those who don't know God and compel us to tell them about him. So listen, be intentional to disciple others for your own soul. Yes, like for, do it for the joy that comes with, with spiritual investment into someone else's life. 
And then do it for the soul of those that you pour into and all of the spiritual benefits that they'll gain. But also do it for the souls of those that God may save through them. You see, we need to be stoking one another's love for the Lord so that it kind of bubbles over like boiling water into a world that needs to be heated up with gospel truth. I mean, can you imagine how Pioneer Church's usefulness to the Lord for evangelism would increase over the next five years if we had a culture of people consistently discipling one another? What you'd have is a church filled with people growing in their love for God, growing in their confidence to tell others about him and growing in their burden to do so. And that, my friends, is discipleship feeding evangelism. And it would be resemblant of what our Savior models for us here. Jesus summons the 12. He imparts unto them the same power and authority they've watched him minister with. And then verse 2 tells us that he sends them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He essentially sends them to labor for his cause. Proclamation of God's kingdom and ministry to those who would be citizens of it. It's this kind of two-part assignment that Jesus gives to the apostles. When it says proclamation of God's kingdom, that's simply a verbal proclamation of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. He is the king of kings who had come to establish an eternal kingdom. And when it talks about the healing of the sick, that is a physical demonstration of Jesus' power to do what he said he'd come to do. He'd come to establish a supernatural kingdom. He had supernatural power to do it. And he had a love for people that would compel him to. Like every time Jesus and his apostles performed miracles, those miracles acted as a supernatural sign that he was the all-powerful Savior King that God had sent to save his people into his kingdom. And what we're seeing in this passage is that he is sending the apostles to labor for the cause of that being known. But don't misunderstand this, beloved. You see, it's not just the apostles who are sent to labor for this cause. You, too, have been summoned and sent to labor for the cause of Christ. I mean, Scripture goes on, does it not? And as it does, it becomes clearer and clearer that all who God saves, he expects to tell of his saving power. I mean, think about what Jesus would later tell the apostles in Acts chapter chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The apostles live long enough to see the gospel be spread to those first three places. But you know who's expected to, to, to finish this witnessing to the end of the earth? We are. Us, the New Testament church, is still witnessing. Like we, friends, we now labor for the cause of Christ. This is why Paul writes to a New Testament church in Romans 10 and says, you got to keep preaching. He says there's a world of lost people out there and they won't hear about Jesus if we don't keep preaching about him. So listen to me, church. The expectation is still there. There's still witnessing to be done. There's still lost people to be found. There's still a gospel to be proclaimed. There's still a kingdom being established. There's still a cause to be catapulted. And so we as the people of God must consider that we are still sent to labor for this cause. We must labor for the cause of Christ, beloved, until he himself returns and says the labors are done. And what worthy labors are these, friends? Like we get to labor for the cause of Christ. It's a privilege to labor for the cause of Christ. So might we labor faithfully until there's no more laboring to be done. May we labor for the cause of Christ. And may we also trust in the provision of Christ. We get to verse 3, and Jesus gives further instructions that many of us may find somewhat strange. He's sending his apostles into the field. He's sending them to do ministry. He, more than anyone, knows how demanding, difficult, and even dangerous ministry can be. 
but he basically tells them that they need not to prepare for the difficulty. He says in verse 3, take nothing for the road. Many of us would have quit after that first sentence. <laughs> like I'm not calling anybody out, but I know that there's some folks in the room who probably packed two or three bags just to go on a weekend trip. And I'm not saying that I don't belong to that group. Like, like I'm out of struggle with this instruction. Like, see, I have the philosophy that it's better to overprepare and have all you need than to underprepare and be mad because you left something. Well, Jesus says here that they needed to leave everything and take nothing. My son, Oakland, is... He's in this phase where he's starting to show uh, the opinionated parts of his personality. I'm not sure if he gets it from, from, from me or from Lauren. It depends on which of us you ask. Uh, but one of us, one of us has passed on this gene of, of stubbornness. And it's a strong gene. And so Oakland's recently started doing this thing where he throws a fit when he doesn't get the snack he wants. Uh, so Lauren or I, we'll, we'll go and, and, and get him up from his nap. And at that point, it's snack time. So we'll put him in his high chair and we'll go get a snack from the pantry. We'll be headed toward him with a snack. But let's say that he wants pretzels and we're bringing goldfish. When he notices that we've got goldfish and we ain't bringing no pretzels, y'all know what he does? He says, nothing, nothing. It's like, nothing. He just waves us off like, like nothing, nothing. It's hilarious when you, like, it's the epitome of, of a toddler protest. <laughs> like, I actually get mixed emotions as a parent because there's a small part of me that's like, this is hilarious, how do I hold myself together? And there's another part of me that's, that's actually kind of proud of him. Like, it's, it's clear that my boy knows what he wants and he's going to stand his ground. That'll be great if the Lord can redeem it. And then if God does, we'll say that he got that gene from me. <laughs> but the majority of me, the majority of me knows that I better nip this thing in the bud before it grows and gets to be a real problem. So here's what Lauren and I do. When he says nothing... We leave him there in his high chair, and we let him pout. And if he doesn't change his demeanor, you know what he gets for a snack? Nothing. <laughs> Not goldfish nor pretzels. Nothing. My boy is learning that the word nothing actually means nothing. So when he tells us he wants nothing, his snack time is filled with an empty high chair tray because the word nothing means nothing. And so when Jesus says to the apostles that they needed to take nothing for the road, he's saying they needed to go empty handed. Carry zero things with you, Christ says. And then if we keep reading, we see the specific things he tells them not to take. And that helps us understand why he's telling them to take nothing. No staff, he says. A staff was was used to help you walk long distances. And, and you could also use it as a weapon for protection if you needed to. Jesus says that they didn't need it. No traveling bag. It's obvious what, what this could have been used for. Like you could store things in it. You could carry it in it, carry things in it. Jesus said to leave it. No bread. Now, this was one of the more common foods of their day. It was a primary way that people nourished themselves, especially if they were traveling. Jesus says, leave the bread at home and let it mold. No money. And so you also won't get to buy any bread, nor a bag, nor a staff whenever you get to where you're going. And don't take an extra shirt, Christ says. Now, with this, Jesus essentially makes the point that cleanliness, warmth, Self-presentation, preparedness, and comfort, they needed to lay all of those things down as a priority. And then he tells them, whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. They had to be content with whatever home took them in first as a host home. They couldn't just change homes based on their personal preferences. And so with this list, Jesus is saying, I know that there are a number of things you could rely on to, to help and sustain you in the ministry field, but I want you to take none of it. 
Leave it all where it lays, Christ says. Now, the reason he tells the apostles to take nothing, friends, is because they needed to understand that they could rely solely upon the power and authority that Christ had just given them. You see, they needed to understand that even when, from your own perspective, you feel you have nothing, if God empowers and sends you to do something, you actually have everything that you need. You see, God provides for the work that he intends to see happen. But hold on, hold on. wait a minute. Uh, I know that y'all read your Bibles, and so many of you are probably wondering right now, well, why is this different than, than that other time when he sends his apostles out to, to, to minister in the field? In Luke 22, verses 35 to 38, Jesus sends the apostles again, and that time he says that they needed to take a bag, and they needed to get a sword, and they needed to, to go with more things in hand that time. So what was different about then from now? Well, with this being the first time they were sent out, Jesus wanted to strip them of everything they might be tempted to trust in and rely on and look to as a primary source of help. Everything outside of his provision, he wanted to strip them of, because in this moment, at the outset of their ministry, they needed to know that God in heaven is the one true provider for ministry on earth. And you see, this, is, this has always been the case, friends. God provides for the ministry that he intends to see happen. And if what we see for his people and, and, and him doing for his people in Scripture isn't, isn't enough to convince us, then consider how he's contributed, continued to provide for ministry in post-biblical times. Think about the life of Amy Carmichael. The lady was, was used mightily to, to minister to orphans in India, and she had this ministry philosophy in which she never asked supporters for help meeting their ministry needs. She simply prayed and she watched God meet the needs. They needed land and a building to house all of the kids she was ministering to. And without an ask, God provided them with land and a facility. Then several times the facility needed upgrades and expansion for the growth of the ministry. And God provided for the upgrades and expansion. And so she was later quoted saying, we rely upon the verses which assure us that our father knows our needs and we take it that with such a father, to know is to supply. <laughs> that didn't get y'all like I thought it would, okay. If Carmichael doesn't get you, consider the life of George Mueller. He also ran an orphanage, and, and he never asked supporters to meet the needs, but he had this awe-inspiring prayer life that highlights God's ability to meet needs. There's an infamous story of, of Mueller being met by a worried house mother at, of the orphanage one morning, she approaches him and tells him that the kids were dressed and ready to begin the school day, but they didn't have any breakfast to feed the kids. So Mueller instructs her to take the 300 orphans and, and, and go and sit them at the dining tables in the dining room. And then he retreated for a time of prayer with the Lord. And shortly after Mueller had offered his petitions to God, a local baker shows up at the orphanage. The baker says to Mr. Mueller, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night and, and I don't know how, but somehow... I knew that you would need bread this morning. And so I got up, I baked three batches of bread, and I want to take it into the kids. And then the kids are sitting there being served this bread, friends, and another knock comes to the door. <laughs> it was the milkman. His cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And in order to prevent this milk from spoiling, he knocks on the orphanage door and he asks Mr. Mueller if he might have any use for some free milk. You see, Carmichael knew that God provides for the work he ordains. Mueller knew that God provides for the work he ordains. And I know there are many Christians in this room this morning who need to hear this today. If God truly sets you apart to do something, it is he who empowers you and provides for you so that you can see whatever he's called you to so that you can see it through. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this to be true in my own life. 
Now, there have been countless times that a ministry assignment has, has been made clear to Lauren and I, and, and as we transition to fulfill said assignment, it seemed as if, as if God ordered circumstances to send a very clear message. You rely upon me for this work. And so I stand here this morning, friends, as one who testifies of knowing this to be true. It has never been and will never be what you have that allows you to minister for the Lord's kingdom. Whether you have or have not, it has always been and will always be what God provides that enables you to minister for his sake. It's not your strength. It won't be your possessions. It's never been your wisdom, not your popularity, not your good looks, not your money. None of it. It's God deciding that he would find delight in seeing you used in his work. So he empowers you for it and he enables it to happen. I know some of you in the room may want to be pastors someday. Resolve now that pastoring ain't done in your own strength. Some of you want to be missionaries overseas someday. A plane might physically carry you to somewhere foreign, but it'll be the hand of God that carries you spiritually for the work you give yourself to. My parents in the room, you may feel inadequate to minister to your own kids. Let me remind you, you are inadequate. But your God isn't. God is sufficient for the work of ministry, even to your kids. Some of you have neighbors and colleagues that you feel afraid to minister to. Fear not, because the Lord's strength is sufficient. Some of you live your whole life with this fear and nervousness about evangelism because you don't think God can use you to introduce himself to someone else. Listen to me, beloved. Stop thinking so much about yourself and remember who your God is. God doesn't need you to be anything you aren't in order for him to use you. He does the extraordinary with the ordinary. Pioneer Church. At this point, it's predominantly a church of white people. So how in the world is that church going to reach the predominantly black neighborhood around their building? We're going to pray for God's help. We're going to avail ourselves for God's use. We're going to go for God's cause, and we're going to submit to God's plans, trusting that if he intends for us to reach this community, the best thing for us to do is to look up for his help instead of looking in for any capability of our own, because we know that the truth of the matter is that we ain't got no capability of our own. Only God is sufficient for the work of saving people and calling them to himself. We are fully dependent upon God in the same way that he wanted to show these apostles they were. We look to God for help as if our lives and ministries and usefulness depend on it, because it all does. That's a fact, friends. We must trust in the provision of Christ. Jesus gives more instructions in verse 5. He says, if they do not welcome you, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is another strange instruction from Jesus. But this one, his disciples would have been familiar with. You see, shaking the dust from one's feet uh, was a symbolic practice and, and a kind of pious ritual for Jewish people. It was a statement intended to, to draw a line of distinction between the holy and the unholy. I'm sure most of us know the, the Old Testament story of Moses at the burning bush and how God instructed him to remove his sandals while he stood in his presence because where God's presence was was to be considered holy ground, right? Right. Well, this was a a symbolic statement from God that the dirt and filth which Moses carried on the bottom of his shoes shouldn't contaminate the holy ground that represented the very presence of God in that moment. It was holy ground and pagan dirt was not permitted to contaminate it. Well, this this the ongoing way of of, of thinking and practices among the Jews came to reflect what Moses had experienced. 
The Jews developed this, this ritual in which they would literally remove their sandals before stepping from pagan lands into Israel. So if a Jew had, had left Israel to travel to a foreign place and, and this foreign place was associated with the worship of false gods and, and idols and pagan lifestyles, whenever they returned home, they would stop at the border, take their shoes off and beat the dust off their shoes as a way of saying, this over here is holy land and that pagan dust from over there can't come in here because this land is going to remain holy. See, the action was a a statement that spoke of Israel's holiness and distinction from the rest of the world because God's presence dwelt there and and God's people dwelled in Israel and the worship of God, all of it took place in Israel. So it was a holy place. And so when Jesus tells the apostles to shake the dust from their feet as a statement against those who would welcome them, who wouldn't welcome them, he's essentially saying that you need to, to send a message to them that if they forsake my kingdom of which you preach, they're forsaking a holy belonging to my people. He's saying they're forsaking the, 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 the set-apartness of those I'll call my own. Friends, they would have been forsaking the holy distinction that the God of the universe could place on them. You see, this symbolic message would say to them that they were on the wrong side of the border which separated those who were pagan and hell-bound from those who in Christ would be made pure and heaven-bound. But the most jarring part about this whole statement that Jesus makes is that the the apostles would be sending this message with this Jewish ritual in Jewish villages. Y'all can probably guess that I love that. Because see, this makes the point that even from the very first time Christ sent his apostles to minister for his cause, he wanted it to be known that his kingdom, this, this, this thing that he was establishing, it was not entered or inherited by ethnic identity. But you see, it would be the spiritual identity of those who heard the proclaimed message and believed on Christ and repented of their sins who would see their souls be saved into this eternal kingdom. So listen, beloved, when we labor for the cause of Christ, we labor for a cause that extends beyond any ethnic or social or psychological differences among people. And it draws them into into this kind of common ground where the thing we have in common speaks with much greater volume than those things that make us different. And so might we be like the disciples in verse 6? Might we go and, and travel from place to place with the gospel always on our lips and tangible expressions of God's love and care always ready at our hands? And might we trust in the provision he gives as we do? We want to labor for the cause of Christ. We want to trust in the provision of Christ. And lastly, we want to contribute to the fame of Christ. We get to verses 7 through 9, and we're introduced to a man named Herod. Now, he isn't to be confused with, with Herod, who ordered the massacre of, of the baby boys in, in, in Matthew chapter 2. This is actually that first Herod's son. And this Herod, he rules the Galilean area that, that Jesus and his apostles are ministering in. And so when the hype about Jesus and the apostles, uh, that their miraculous ministry starts to spread, Herod naturally hears about it, and he starts to believe some of the rumors about how this might be happening. We're told that people were apparently speculating that Jesus was was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of old that, that God had raised from the dead, and, and that must have been how these miracles were happening. So Herod is confused because he knows that those other prophets have been dead and gone for a long time, and he knows that he just had John the Baptist beheaded at the request of his wife who hated John the Baptist. You can go in and read of that story in Mark chapter 6. But Herod is hearing of all that goes on with Jesus. He's, he's, he's hearing of the miraculous works and the powerful preaching of Jesus and his apostles. And I want you to notice what the last sentence in this passage leaves us with. Herod wanted to see him. You see, Herod doesn't know all the details. 
but he knows that this Jesus figure is becoming more and more famous in this vicinity that he's in charge of. And I want to make this simple point in light of what we see here. When we're faithful to labor for the cause of Christ, we make contributions to the fame of Christ. When we spread the gospel, beloved, our Lord and Savior becomes more famous. Luke has ordered this in such a way that shows us Jesus' fame has started to grow and, 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 and he sent the apostles to minister in reflection of him. And as a result of their ministry, his fame grows all the more. But did you notice who Herod is wanting to see in that last sentence? It says he wanted to see him, that singular. So the apostles, they're not involved in the ministry, but the, the focus is still all on Christ. And I don't want to leave today without saying this to you. Your life purpose would be counted as fulfilled if you do nothing other than make Christ Jesus more famous. Pioneer Church's purpose would be counted as fulfilled if we do nothing other than make Christ Jesus more famous. So let's give ourselves to this this year, beloved. Let's wholeheartedly be about the work of making our Lord and his gospel known. Like we serve a savior of, of ever increasing fame. His fame is never to stop increasing. And we should desire more than anything else to be used in the propagation of it. I mean, I was burdened this week as I read this passage and, and thought to myself that I've lived in the, the Bible Belt South for my entire life. And yet I can count on, the, 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 on one hand the number of times that people have tried to share the gospel with me instead of assuming that I'm already a Christian. Like, why aren't God's people telling other people about him? I think it's because we're not delighting in him like we should. I mean, the apostles in Acts 4.20, they're told to, to stop preaching about Jesus, and they respond by saying that they can't not tell of what they've seen and heard. So, beloved, do you consider your own salvation and what you've seen and heard in the gospel, do you consider it enough to be compelled to the point of inability to stop telling of it? Now, let's contribute to the fame of our Lord. I mean, do we not want to be a church that is, is so overwhelmed with joy by what we experience in Christ that we desperately want to see others experience the same joy? And I know we, we, we can't determine who's going to be saved and, 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 and how many people respond to the gospel of Christ but we can make sure that a whole lot of people have the opportunity to. And I believe that if we're faithful, God will bless our efforts. God cares way more about his cause than any of us in this room do. And so let's do our part, friends, as tools by being ready and available for him to use us whenever he deems it time for someone lost to be saved. And you know how we do that? We keep our eyes up for opportunities and we faithfully share in case it just happens to be one of those times that God intends to save. And hear me say this, too. I know there are tons of worries and, and doubts that can keep us from being faithful in evangelism. God isn't looking for some perfect, polished, state-of-the-art tool to use. Like God can use the meekest of means. I mean, many of these apostles, they were just blue-collar fishermen who God chose to use as world-shaking evangelists. Like Remember, he provided them with everything they needed. Power, authority, instructions. But most importantly... He provided them with their own salvations. I'll close with what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.10. For this reason, we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. So we need to be like Paul, friends, and recognize that if the truth of Jesus coming to earth, living perfectly, dying for the imperfect, and then rising to forever redeem them, redeem them if that truth has given us an eternal hope, it can give this same hope to other people. So might we give ourselves to laboring for the cause of many, many more people 
come to know and trust in and believe in and worship Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we know that your gospel, the gospel of your son, Christ Jesus, is worthy of being made known. We know that you've made men your intended tool of use to make it known. And so we pray for your help in availing ourselves toward this end this morning. Use us, Lord, for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom, we pray. Amen.